0: Welcome back to Densely Speaking. I'm Greg Schell, one of your co-hosts. Today we have a bonus appendix for you. The episode starts with our conversation with our guest, Conrad Chicatello. This is the meat of the episode, as it is each time. Then we each give our appendix, and then after that, Conrad sticks around with me to share some thoughts about the switch to virtual work by boards of directors during the pandemic, talk about his experience as a director. He's been on corporate boards for over 15 years and how all of this interacts with his research on geography and corporate governance. That is about a 10 minute bonus appendix at the end. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to Densely Speaking, conversations about cities, economics, and law. My name is Greg Schill, and I'm a law professor at the University of Iowa. Here with me today are Jeff Lynn. My name is Jeff. I'm an economist at the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia. And our guest, Conrad Chicatello. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Conrad is a professor at the Business School at the University of Denver. Today on the show, the relationship between corporate directors and geography. Recently, especially with Me Too and now the racial justice protests, momentum has been building among investors and the general public alike for public companies to diversify their boards of directors along the lines of race and gender. Some states have gone a step further, enacting mandates that companies add women to their boards. Corporate boards are where, as a formal matter, corporate policy is made. So to the extent personnel is policy, as the expression has it, one would expect a change in board personnel to result in changes to corporate policy. Indeed, that is part of the stated purpose of many diversity initiatives, and some evidence suggests that female directors, for example, make for, quote, stricter monitors. Now, to the extent that that is good, stricter monitors, it would seem to present the possibility of a win-win among social welfare benefits and shareholder wealth, which, of course, would be great. Everybody likes a win-win, But of course, as scholars, we have a duty to be a little bit skeptical of things that look so good on the surface. And so here to help us understand one aspect of this relationship between these variables, specifically the role of geography and distance, is Professor Conrad Cicatello, Director and Professor of the Freeman School of Finance in the Daniels College of Business at the University of Denver. Together with Professor Zinat Alam at the University of North Texas Business School, Mark Chen at Georgia State Business, and Harley Ryan, also of Georgia State, Conrad has a working paper out called Gender and Geography in the Boardroom, What Really Matters for Board Decisions, which we have linked in the show notes. In the paper, the authors, quoting now from the abstract, examine whether the observed relation between gender diversity and board decisions is due to a confounding factor namely directors' geographic distance from headquarters. Conrad, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Of the various aspects of the relationship between directors and diversity, how did you choose to focus on geographic distance, and how did you go about that?
1: So geographic distance in our paper, the distance between where a director resides and the headquarters, is an empirical proxy for the type of information set that that director acquires and uses. So what we're really doing there is saying, if you live a thousand miles from headquarters or you live 10 miles from headquarters, regardless of your gender, you're going to acquire different types of information and that does influence in our analysis the type of decisions you make. That's the empirical intuition in the paper that leads to the geographic link to things like diversity.
0: And why would distance intrinsically influence attitudes or relationships?
1: So I think about if you reside, let's just say in the town where the headquarters is, that in your normal course of business, that you're acquiring information about the company at no marginal cost. So I like to use an anecdote. You go to your daughter's softball game uh, where you see the CFO of the company, you're a, you're an independent director of the board. And usually, you would not have a pleasant conversation, not about business, and you watch your children play softball. But this particular day, you notice that, that she seems to be very preoccupied. She's into her phone, she's not looking up, she's not watching the game, she just looks upset. Now, that's a perchance opportunity. But it does sort of influence, like, why is this officer upset? Now, maybe a family matter. It may be a company matter. Or you drive past the headquarters and the grass isn't being cut. It's sort of a simplistic example. But really, this is about the economics of collecting information. That information, if you live a 1,000 miles away, you never get. It. You show up at a board meeting and you go through a board book. So what we call soft information is that first kind, what you acquire in person. Hard information is what can be transmitted at great distance at no marginal cost. So I look at the stock price, you know, I get a 10K sent to me. So that mix between those two types of information at a board level can influence, you know, upon what we rely to make particular decisions.
0: On that, you mentioned independent directors, which by law cannot work, by definition, I should say, cannot work for the company. Many of them are not local to the, at least in the public company context, uh, don't live locally. How do companies go about choosing directors?
1: I've sat on public company boards for 16 years. In our case, we hired a search firm, and the search firms, as they do, they do diligence around candidates that fit the particular company's needs. It's also very relevant the networks of the directors already on the board, you know, and senior management. I met this person. I knew this person. Now, you're still statutorily independent, but you have some sense, you know, in academics, there's you know collegiality, right? That, oh, I work with that person, and they may have views different than I do, but they're a very good person to join our board because they express those views in a very constructive way, right? So just having that you know, personal experience definitely matters because, like in academics, we depend a lot on cooperation. My experience, boards are the same way, right? So you want to assemble a group of people with diverse backgrounds and interests and talents, but they have to function as an entity and get to decisions. So there's multiple channels with which you know, directors come to be on board.
0: And search firms, I take it, from my experience in corporate practice, can play a, a major role. I guess maybe even a growing role in that with their you know matrices and so on. Does that does that resonate?
1: Yes, exactly right. Because, I mean, the search firms, we express to them, look, we are interested in increasing the diversity of the board, you know, and so they can use their networks and bring us diverse candidates that maybe were not in any of our particular networks prior. So I I think the search firm really does help with the identification of candidates that fit, including diverse ones. Are there certain types of firms that are going to be more proactive? or more aggressive about achieving diversity goals on boards? I think it's a great question. So in certain industries that I think have maybe a higher social profile, and this might be also what we call in our paper, higher prestige firms, larger firms. So it'd be very strange to take a Fortune 100 firm and you you see the picture of the board and there are no women or no directors of color. I mean, that's might be statutorily a problem now, but it also would be an optics problem. It's like, really this this firm? But then I think you could look at a couple of the dimensions, Jeff, that we looked at. So in certain industries, heavy industries, manufacturing industries, smaller firms, non-outside of large MSAs, you're not going to have that much of an optics factor. So, okay, this is a heavy manufacturing firm. Today, still, it's like, really no women, no directors of color. So I think it's moving that way, but I think there is a perception which is really important and that some firms need to be more out in front of it, really in equilibrium.
0: In terms of types of diversity, do you have a perception about which types are either prioritized by policy people, legislators, you know, people on the public side, or by firms and investors on the other side?
1: To my knowledge, both in the US and globally, the gender diversity has been first into the, you know, sort of the, the policy and statutory regimes. And you think about, well, I mean, half the population, give or take a few percent or two are women. So that diversity element, if you move to race, in the US at least, there's you know, maybe still supermajority of Caucasians, but race makes the, you know, sort of Achieving certain targets, if it's just a representative or not, zero one, just in terms of the numbers, is more challenging with race than gender. It's a great question because it would ask, well, is there one element of diversity that's more important than another element of diversity? Perhaps having a board that's diverse in color would bring greater variety perspectives than gender. And that's a fascinating question. And it'll be a question as there's an evolution towards more gender and race diversity on boards, what differences would we see? Just thinking about what is the role of diversity on boards, just thinking about what we know about that. Can you explain what's at stake in your research? This is informed by my research and my sitting on boards. there's a perception. And I think, you know, there's a fair amount of literature. If you take a very sort of narrow agency cost based look at boards, it's like, well, okay, they get a retainer. You know, why would they work very hard? Why would they challenge the CEO? They're all handpicked. They're not strong. They're not independent. They don't do diligence. Right. And so you sort of start with that agency based view and you'd say, all right, well, you know, we represent the shareholders. So we're giving up the voice of the shareholders and whatever the CEO wants, the CEO gets. So I start with that frame of reference. I think, all right, well, independence now is strongly statutorily enabled. What does diversity add to independence? And the way I think about it and the way the literature has looked at it is, well, boys club, right? Well, boys do when they get together at to a board dinner, talk about sports. What if you add a woman to the board dinner? Well, maybe the, the woman acts as a check and balance on boys club. So that's the Adams and Ferreira literature. What else? Different perspectives. I mean, to me, in the end, it's fascinating to think about gender and race, and then what other elements of diversity could there be amongst the three of us on this call? Where were we raised? I mean, what types of schools did we go? What prior experiences have we had, both personally and professionally? And I think it as a way, even though the three of us don't have gender diversity, We could be an effective board by bringing these different perspectives in. And that's what's interesting about the measurement challenge. I think it's a fascinating empirical question. Is this necessarily maximizing diversity if if I choose to put a woman on the board and I did not take a male, but this male had this very unique background? Those are the kind of things I, I do think we think about them when we're choosing directors to come on the board. So, Jeffrey, it's a challenging kind of optimization problem.
0: So, Conrad, you mentioned agency costs and the agency challenges of governing by an independent board, sometimes from afar with you know different types of information and so on. Can you say a word about the agency relationship and how this fits into that literature?
1: I think of boards as intermediaries between shareholders and upper management, and in particular the CEO, if you want to put it on an individual. We represent the shareholders, and that CEO Works for us, and the literature in finance is very focused on. Well, as an as an agent, I want to optimize my remuneration and minimize my effort. And it's our jobs as as the intermediary for a a large dispersed group of investors to monitor and advise our our agent. And I think of that challenge as really, when I say monitor and advise, it's really a fascinating kind of tension. Right. So since Sarbox, we've Sarbanes-Oxley, we've really focused more on the monitoring piece. Right. And then you think about the challenge of selling, you know, I'm always watching you and I'm waiting for you to do the wrong thing versus being somebody who who you can act, can act as a sounding board. So I, I find the relationship a very interesting one. So we focus on monitoring directors in our research right, because they're making those decisions about hire, fire, and how you're paid. But really, the function of boards as a place where you can safely think about strategic options without looking like, you. oh, okay, well, I'm monitoring you now, and that's a bad idea. That's one of the elements, I think, that sometimes we can chase out some value in an entity like a board by being very much focused on quantifying the monitoring. So, it's a very nuanced uh, role. At the end of the day, can you summarize precisely what you find in terms of how directors that are close to headquarters how that affects companies' behavior and company decisions? So we look. We did this in our first paper published in the Journal of Financial and Quantitative Analysis in 2014. We looked at the relationship between CEO termination decisions. And CEO compensation structure and the distance of the board from headquarters. So, in a nutshell, when directors are further away, they tend to fire CEOs based more strongly on poor stock price performance. And they tend to compensate CEOs based more strongly on stock based incentives. That was 2014. So, the innovation in this paper is. All right. How does gender diversity fit in this? One story. Well, women are tougher monitors. And when they see the stock price go down, they'll push to fire the CEO and, and not have the old boys club. But the confounding piece is those female directors also tend to be at greater geographic distance due to the geographic clustering of female directors. So there's a confounding, and this paper then sets up, a, if you will, the race, the empirical race. And what we find is when you control for, for director distance, that harder monitor element of gender diversity is not empirically uh, significant. Right. I think that that part of the analysis is really fascinating, and I definitely want to you know, come back to this issue about like, where female directors are coming from. But just to, to reiterate, like sort of like the baseline finding of your earlier work was that directors who are farther away from headquarters are more likely to rely on, quote-unquote, hard information. You drew this earlier difference between soft information and hard information. Those directors that are farther away are going to be more likely drawn the hard information in deciding what to do about things like executive compensation or executive turnover. Is this soft information good or bad, right? Like soft information could be useful for a board member if they see something about a CEO's interpersonal communication with other people in the company. But soft information may also just replicate this sort of boys' network, right, boys' club, where obfuscate or distract from sort of CEO problems. Probably in our co-author team, we have talked about this very issue for, I'm guessing, 40 hours, right? It's a really interesting question. And where we are is, we're not saying soft information is good or bad relative to hard information, right? It's different. So your example is very, very good one. You're an independent director, and I'm the CEO, and we both live in the same town. And I say, hey, Jeff, come on over to my club. I want to have dinner with you, right? You say, well, this is really good. I can I can serve the CEO up close for a couple hours. Well, as soon as you get in there, I start pitching you on something. Let's just to say a pet project of mine. And maybe I know that one of your children plays a sport and I can make a nice donation so that they can get a nice feel. It's it's that type of thing you could think about as a challenge of having soft information. And then there's this lovely objectivity of distance. I go to, to my monitor, the stock price is down. You send the 10K, your profits are down. I don't need your pitching and long dinners. I'm looking at the hard evidence. What are you doing? Right? The stock price is down. I don't need to be politicked by you because we're neighbors. So your question is, is a fascinating one. Parsing this information you gather in person and how does it deal with being captured? Is I think the, the term that's used is, my mind more easily captured if I'm local? And that has a gender twist too, right? Because the boys club may be a locality phenomenon, but the female directors coming in from the other part of the country and said, yeah, I don't care what club you go to, the stock's in the tank. So that's it. So y- your question is really good, but not good or bad, different in our world.
0: I think that's an important additional contribution of this piece is to draw a pretty clear line between soft and hard information, one that, that shows up elsewhere in the literature. But you're giving, I think, an example of one axis along which that distinction may turn. And on that note, it seems to me that it's not uncommon for board members to phone in to board meetings. Now, of course, now we're in a global pandemic, so everybody's even if you live next door, you'd probably Zoom or phone in. But even a year ago, it was not uncommon for that to happen. And not only if the director was across the country, maybe if they were in Houston and the board was meeting in Dallas, which is like a four-hour drive, they might phone into that. So one thing that I was wondering about when I was looking through your data is that there would be kind of a binary of, you know, are you a local director or are you not? And That didn't really show up. It seemed to actually be more graduated. Did you have any thoughts on why you looked at S and P fifteen hundred firms? They were really all over the lower forty eight, right? So you have quite a big population of firms and directors here. What are your thoughts on that?
1: So it's an empirical question in the end, right? And one of the reasons that we settled for this radial measure, so the hundred kilometer kind of zero one, is the continuous measure. When we were roadshow in this paper, we took a lot of abuse for the continuous metric. How is 500 kilometers any different than 600 or for 1,000 a, a for that matter? So we looked at some of the other literature around things like venture capital and other stuff I know that Jeff looks at in terms of knowledge spillovers. And we kind of combined the intuition of when am I going to have this co-creation type phenomenon of being in the same town. And we empirically settled on 100 kilometers. Now, even that got some folks kind of upset because is 100 kilometers in New York Metro, the same as 100 kilometers in the middle of Kansas. Well, no. And in Kansas, that's a little over an hour's drive, right? What about mass transit? There's all these types of things. But we wanted to have kind of a, all right, if you're within 100 kilometers, there's going to be times where you can have that meal or you're going to have that social event. That makes sense. And that's what to avoid challenge you express is a really big one. But that's why we wanted to have that zero one to sort of say, okay, a local board is inside 100 kilometers. It's pretty robust. I mean, our first paper, we tried 50, 100 and 150. Didn't really see material change. But at some point, it's got to be an on off, I think, exactly for the reason that you suggest. But it's a little gradual kind of as you get into that kind of 50 to 150. kilometer range. You alluded to this kind of parallel literature on knowledge spillovers, which has been the focus of some of my work. I think of Annalise Saxenian's book on Silicon Valley and Route 128 as really illustrating this well with the wagon wheel bar near Intel and Raytheon as like an informal recruiting station, as well as sort of the place for people just came to talk shop. And what that literature really emphasizes, like your paper does, about the role of geography in the flows of knowledge and information. I think instead of a hard or soft, there's a distinction that's made between, the labels are different. There's a distinction made between tacit and codified knowledge, tacit being sort of you know, harder to transmit. The thing that kind of hooks me into your paper is thinking about information flows within a firm. I'd kind of be interested to hear a little bit more from your experience or in your research, are firms paying attention to these kinds of information flows, not just in their organization in general, but specifically in terms of, do I select a board member who's closer or farther from HQ? It's a really, really good question. And I'll give you just from my board experience, the board dinner, the night before the meeting is where a lot of soft information gets shared, distributed. And some of this almost strategic type knowledge spillover, you'd think, okay, that's a dinner, right? You're just getting better to, to eat. And then the board meeting now, and I think this is the monitoring phenomenon, right? There's a giant board book and we're there to check up on you. So everything gets very scripted and it's kind of the antithesis of what you're thinking about in this kind of knowledge spillover. And so I think there's a fascinating interplay again between being an advisor and a strategic sounding board and watching you to make sure you're always doing the right thing. I generally try to get people out of the board book in the board sessions because you get a little bit more of that extemporaneous type of discussion. You ask this really cool stylized question, so what if the person who's just got this incredible sense, experience for what we want to do strategically lives a thousand kilometers away. That's a really fascinating trade-off. And so one of the things I've thought about is this whole Zoom phenomenon. I hear big organizations say, no, like Ernst & Young, we're a lot more efficient in Zoom than we ever were when we were in the office. But I have an affiliation with a consulting group and I asked them and they said, where it's really challenging is right at the beginning of an engagement. Where it really helped to be in the Once we get almost to this bureaucratized, this box kind of, the Zoom box, puts us in almost this classic Bavarian bureaucracy mode. As long as we've got exact things to do, beautiful. As soon as it's got to put six or seven different people together to do something we haven't done, hard. So uh, it'll be interesting, Jeffrey. I'd be fascinated in your thoughts about can you conquer geographic distance and knowledge spillovers? And I know that you had shared a paper with us that shows that some organizations are better at doing that. To me, that's a fascinating question. Yeah, I agree. It's a question for the age, right? (laughs) Yeah.
0: You get jumping a little bit into the weeds on geography. So one thing that's kind of implied by your results, although it's not the focus of the paper, is the concentration of female directors in the Northeast of the United States. See some of this discussion around table one, where it seems like the correlation between distant directors and female directors is least pronounced. So far, consistent with your interpretation that some places like the Northeast Corridor have thick markets for directors, especially female directors. But that does kind of lead to a question of why the Northeast is such a disproportionate supplier of female director labor. Do you have any theories about that?
1: I do. So, if you look at our paper, the average age of the directors are 61. And one of the things, again, that's changed with the emphasis on monitoring is. If I have a day job, I'm an officer in another company. I don't go take a board seat, an independent board seat in another company. Way back, that was more commonly done. Now it's looked down upon because it's like, no, being a monitoring is a full-time job. So what's happened is think about diversity. We don't have very many young directors on public boards. We're losing a whole perspective of youth, relative youth. And it's just people hitting retirement age. Now as to the Particular Northeast question, here's my theory, and it comes from anecdotes from my own boards. In that part of the country with progressive financial services firms, I'm just going to use Big Four as an example. Women got into Big Four earlier in sort of the evolution of women and working capital. And now they're retiring. They're 60, 61. They were a national partner at KPMG. And it was a lot of the Northeast Corridor big cities that got these service firms in the finance industry and accounting. And these women reached the pinnacle of the firm. And now they are fantastic board colleagues. And that's why I tend to see a lot of women on audit committees, because it was a progressive part of the country. And it was also sort of endogenously wrapped around industries that... And to have a big presence there. And I think that's other than just the density factor, Greg, that's the only region in the country where the average woman travels a shorter distance to headquarters than the average man director. The rest of the country, it's a multiple of two to three times. Women just have to go a lot further to get there. And if you're not Apple or Microsoft, a woman might say, wow, I got to get on a flight. I got to connect. And you might say, well, okay, four times a year, how hard is that? Until a crisis happens. But the other thing to think about with boards is it's sort of like being a firefighter. And boy, when something hits like this or like the financial crisis and you're not local, it's tough. really spins around those women reaching the high levels of companies in the Northeast just earlier. It's a striking fact and a really intriguing hypothesis. I mean, I personally would just love to read a history of that era And the opportunities that women might have had in those companies sounds like a fascinating sort of a fascinating history. So the counter example would be, let's just say, energy or oil and gas. So if you go back 35 years, how many women were in an industry like that? I know a few. There weren't very many. And they were pioneers because they worked around the world. They worked in a lot of very challenging environments where they were truly the only woman. And now, so if you're on a firm that's in that industry and you want industry expertise and gender diversity, those are rare, right? So that creates, again, a supply-demand factor where that woman might have the chance to be on five or six boards and they might choose, you know, ExxonMobil versus a smaller company. So the cross-sectional industrial differences are really, really interesting. And it's this evolution of path of careers and the endogenous link to certain parts of our country, which is an extremely diverse country geographically.
0: Continuing with our kind of weedsy theme here, how did you work out where directors live? it can be a tricky data point to nail down.
1: It is. So if you're a public company director and you purchase shares, for example, you fill out SEC Form 4, And if you look at that form, it has an address on it, but it's typically the corporate headquarters. So it doesn't help you with this empirical link to soft and hard information, which is the distance from where someone resides to where headquarters is. So we needed reliable residential data. We used several sources to get that. You start with with director names. And if you have a name like Conrad Chicatello as an empirical researcher, it's like Hallelujah because there's only one. But if you have a director named Mary Smith, this can be empirically very challenging, right? So you had to find a reliable address for a director with the name. So in the end, this paper brings together maybe a half a dozen different data sources. But we started with a locator database, ended up using LexisNexis Person Locator which has the advantage of not being something that looks like we made decisions about where someone resides. Because empirically, Greg, you're exactly right, because the comments we got is, well, probably a lot of these directors have two homes. And we were ultimately able to say, well, we use the address in, in LexisNexis person locator, which has 150 million records. Now, in terms of privacy, that's a scary idea that somebody knows where you live. We're very conscious of this. I'm on public boards and, you know, I wouldn't want my residents shared in research. So this is why we took a large sample empirical approach. Everything that we have in this paper is depersonalized and it's central tenants, right? Which I think are useful to inform policy and practice, as well as the literature on how geography matters, but very, very sensitive to saying, well, Mary Smith lives at 1313 Mockingbird Lane, wow. So we tried to be very, very conscious of the power that LexisNexis in particular brings to this. And I think that was the right thing to do. So CEO lives a thousand miles away. This was brought up empirically. just confound what you're saying, right? And it's actually an interesting question. And there are a lot of ways that the sort of clean empirical setup that we hope to create would have challenges. Officers who don't live near the headquarters is, is one way, or people who work full-time in another entity and are a director. You could argue, okay, well, maybe they live close to that city, but then that's not always true either. The vacation home was the most interesting one, I think, empirically. And we were able to convince, ultimately, our referees, this was noise, not bias. You could think of doing a lot of sensitivity analysis, excluding Florida and Arizona and places like that. But to the extent it's just added noise, okay, you know, is your second home always farther away from headquarters than your first home? That's not clear. So we were able to get that ultimately done. It's more and more rare for full-time employees. Now, I'm an academic. And I sit on boards that it's part of my research. And I think it helps me teaching my classes and helps network our students. But if I were CFO of a publicly traded company and another company said, come be on my board. I think the board, independent directors looking at that CFO would say, or CEO, the extra time you have, you should really be devoted to our shareholders. And I think, again, the cost there is something we've talked about, which is. That's a great way to gain additional information as an officer for your company. That was more common, I would say, pre-SOX. So again, we're back to this kind of tension between kind of this reductive monitoring perspective that the law has and the broader perspective of knowledge spillover, advice, strategy especially in an environment where there's very little selective disclosure you can do. Well, there's actually none underneath policy now, and your board's really one of those places you could really try to sound out ideas. The conflation of policy that has hit boards and public companies in general in the last 20 years really makes it challenging.
0: I agree. I I think it's ironic, but Sarbanes-Oxley may have kind of achieved the board professionalization that academics... Crackman and Gilson dreamed up in the early nineties, which would have been a full director employment program for law and finance professors. So if that means more director gigs, more search firms start um, blowing up my mailbox, I guess I guess we have Sarbanes and Oxley to thanks. So one suggestion of your results is that from the standpoint of strictness, which maybe is a proxy for the quality of governance, although I think one could debate that a little bit. But from that standpoint, diversity is kind of confounded by this other factor of of geography. Do you have any thoughts on board diversity, maybe beyond the frame of immediate shareholder wealth maximization?
1: Yes, and these are informed mainly by my time serving on boards. When you bring a woman onto a board, let's just say it's an all-male board, the executives of the company, some of whom are women, some of whom might be mid-level, when they walk into that boardroom and they see a female director, I think that makes a great difference to them. I think you could say the same thing about racial diversity, because you now have a personification. It's like, oh, well, the company says it's very socially progressive and, and cares about its various constituents, but that director being there, you could use role model as a descriptor. That's, I think, extremely valuable as a credible signal outside of a sort of a narrow wealth maximization kind of view of the world. This will help our morale, you know, the fact that management walks what they talk. And I now have a voice in the sense that as an executive coming up through the company, this person who's represents, you know, my gender or my race knows my challenges, unlike those that don't share my gender or my race or my background. So I think in terms of employee development, morale, recruiting, I think in terms of customer, again, your customer base is diverse, right? I think as a board member who has diverse elements, you represent customers too. I understand this product or service intimately. I might work in the industry and I use it. <laughs> so here my inputs are something that maybe other directors don't have. So, Greg, I think this is a fascinating area, again, maybe more difficult to do quantitatively empirically, but something that your intuition says really matters that's beyond kind of a narrow wealth maximization
0: outcome. And then of course, there's the essentially the entire organized investment community is is reinforcing that point, right? With I think the fearless girl statue is perhaps one, maybe the most concrete physical manifestation of that, that State Street Global Advisors put. On Wall Street, a statue of a girl, kind of facing down. I think it was actually initially facing down the famous Wall Street Bull, which the uh, sculptor of that statue didn't take kindly to. But also, more substantively, there have been uh, serious initiatives to enhance diversity at the board level by the investor community as well as consumers.
1: Oh yes, I think now you know the emerging ESG standards, where you you could try to get back to our earlier conversation, right? And finance, will try to quantify things, but taking wealth maximization and looking at it through some sort of lens, which has a social and a governance component. And inside those components are elements of a diverse board. Again, I think this the early innings. If you want to use a baseball analogy for ESG, I think this will be another fascinating development where can it promote? Yes. If institutional capital says that your board, gets a low score for its structure, that is going to matter. And I think it's going to bring up another interesting element, which is what will this do to the nature of public companies in terms of numbers and size and makeup and outcomes? So I think that's another area which is very right to think about, and again how geography fits in that as these types of quantification of standards around diversity and governance continue to
0: grow and evolve I think there's another way that geography is coming to play in, which is through the enactment of state legislation in progressive jurisdictions, California, New Jersey, I think Maryland and Illinois come to mind, that impose to varying degrees either mandates on large companies that they diversify their boards or kind of a comply or explain approach. Um, do you have thoughts about that, Lever? The implications from the,
1: the gender paper are prestige matters. I'll get on a plane to be on Apple's board. Thank you very much. But... If you go, again, our proxies were sales and size, go to the bottom third of the S&P 1500 and then move off of, again, endogenous to geography, which is one of the reasons why this country is so interesting is it is so geographically diverse. Go to maybe a heavy machine type industry and somewhere in the middle of the country and think about, okay, who will come here if we need these elements of diversity? Are we going to have to look? At great geographic distance? And what if we can't attract somebody from geographic distance? And how can we do it? So it's this supply and demand interaction clustering that I think is in play here. And I'm tempted to say one implication will be should we have, this is normatively phrased, small publicly traded companies? I think the empirical evidence suggests you look at the Wilshire 5000, there's 3,600 firms in it. Now, Diversity requirements for boards is only one of many reasons, returns to scale, global competition. It's just a very hard to be a public micro cap. And I think the future, if you look forward, Jeff's going to talk about a paper in the appendix that says, well, maybe large organizations are better at sort of sharing information with these remote type subsidiaries. So maybe it's a structure where we have endogenously chosen remote subsidiaries of larger public companies. And that's one model or a SPAC model where you get this sort of pile of money comes in, buys up a lot of stuff. You get instant scale because I'm on the board of public microcap, And I can tell you, we don't have a 15 person investor relations department. So it's again, maybe if you believe you have 300 million market cap, you shouldn't be public if that's kind of a normative position you take. But I think that's one outcome here, is it does put pressure on companies that don't have the scale and prestige, if you will, to kind of address some of these things.
0: Well, I think that's a good segue to our next segment, Appendices, where we each share a short piece that we have come across recently in the area. So Jeff, do you want to start us off?
1: Yeah, thanks. Appendix for this week, as alluded to earlier, is related to this issue of how firms might internalize these internal distance costs. So there's a recent working paper called Internal Geography of Firms. It's written by Dominic Bartlemay, who's at Michigan and Orange Zib, who's at Michigan State. They're using restricted use census data to study multi plant firms. So that's firms with more than one establishment. And they show that small and mid-sized firms tend to be very geographically concentrated. Let's say you take a really narrow industry, like a six digit Nikes industry, for those who are familiar with the jargon. Take two randomly chosen plants in that narrow industry. They're going to be on average roughly 400 miles away from their midpoint. That's the way they define dispersion in this paper. But if you just look at a small firm in that industry, those and draw the two plants in that firm, those plants are only going to be about two miles apart. That's significantly more concentrated than what you would expect if you just took two random plants in the same industry. But what's interesting is that this is significantly less true for large firms. So large firms are much less spatially concentrated compared with the industry benchmark, and, and they tend to add new establishments, or they tend to grow in a way that's close to indistinguishable from the overall dispersion of the industry. The interpretation, I think, is here is that the large firms appear to face lower internal distance costs compared with small firms. And I think an actual explanation is just that large firms appear to have figured out something about how to manage distance better in a way that small firms have not. I thought of this paper because I thought there was a strong connection in these results to Conrad's work on how firms are affected by internal distance. And, you know, more generally, I would really like to see more work, stronger connection between these results and how firms overall manage these issues of
0: internal distance. Great. Thanks. Conrad? So
1: thank you. I've not seen this working paper, and I, too, find it fascinating. And I think this is a question maybe that transcends boards that we had discussed earlier, which is tacit information exchange. Where's the firm in its life cycle? What's the need for that tacit information exchange? How does that evolve over the life cycle? And how does a firm organize itself to maximize that? The distinction I would draw again from the board is we view our job as a board, if Jeff's the CEO, to always be looking at stuff that he might be doing wrong and then bust them when we catch them. We think that's our job. Then I view that as somewhat of a different question from kind of the analysis that in the paper Jeff just described. If our job is no, we are the strategic entity of this company. And our job is to figure out exactly what Jeff just said. How do we structure ourselves? so that we achieve a comparative advantage in our industry and in our stage of the tech cycle. So that's where I think this the pivot, and you could think of in Europe, they have the two-tier board. We've actually thought a little bit about this in our paper is, should you just have this advisory board that doesn't have the weight of always looking like, okay, well, you let the CEO get away with something. And I think sometimes even in a unitary board, there's now getting to be almost factions. It's your job to watch the boss. It's my job to think these really deep thoughts about how we're actually going to create value. And in some ways, I'm intrigued by the duality. In some ways, it kind of frightens me because I think now you've got potentially information sharing broken down at the highest level and compartmentalized. So I think what a lot of people in academics anyway, because it's the data is difficult, they forget about the committee structure. And we look at a board and say it's a board, but a board has got committees. And so, how does this committee structure kind of fit into this whole dynamic of value creation broader than a monitoring sense? Yeah, I think your paper was pretty clear on the need to pay attention to some of these really micro organizational structures and the need to pay attention to those and thinking about analyzing how firms are acting. Doesn't it? I mean, in a way, I'm certainly interested. Greg and Jeffrey about this kind of endogenous evolution of a particular company and its board. And I think, in some ways, it's, firms are like families. You've seen one family, you've seen one family, right? And you could say, oh, right, well, they have three kids and grandparents. And, but then you get into the interpersonal and almost the family cultural element. And I look at examples like that paper you just talked about, Jeffrey, and it's like, well, wow, that is really cool way of thinking about general organizational structural elements, that how robust is really any general sort of takeaway about a company structure and evolution, especially with things like tacit knowledge sharing? And should we be trying to drop this on a board too? That goes back to the diversity question. And I think it's a really interesting one where, where y'all's take on geography is central, thinking about how this has happened in the U.S. and will happen in the future.
0: Conrad, what's your appendix for this week?
1: We have a short article in the corporate board in 2017, Gender, Geography, and the boardroom. In that article, we look at where directors on S&P 1500 firms reside, and we compare where they are, where they reside, to where our headquarters is. It's a very descriptive article, sort of aimed at the practical implications of director travel. And what we find is if you look at the 10 largest MSAs, over half the women on our sample boards live within 100 kilometers of those big cities. And that's about one third for men. In the end, it's this interesting example of the geographic diversity of the U.S. If your headquarters is in the Northeast, the median woman director actually travels a shorter distance. Outside of the Northeast, the median woman has to travel twice as far as the median male. And we're talking 700 kilometers. So that's a 420 mile trip ballpark for the women. So I think in this is an example of how the geographic diversity of the U.S. sets up this sort of differential tax, if you will, that women have to pay to travel to get to to headquarters for board meetings. And really reinforces, again, the challenge of saying, well, we're gonna ask or require all firms to have the same policies around diversity. So there's actually an interesting anecdote in the article about one firm in a small Midwestern city that really valued diversity and valued proximity as well. And they went to extensive efforts to locate and, if you will, onboard local women directors. So it can be overcome in some sense, but there's that cost. And I think in the spirit of the podcast and the theme, the geography has a disparate impact, if you will, across the sample of firms in the U.S.
0: I thought that was really interesting. This is really a terrific companion piece to the main article that we talked about. So for my appendix, I wanted to mention a paper by Stuart Rosenthal and William Strange in this summer's Journal of Economic Perspectives called How Close is Close? The Spatial Reach of Agglomeration Economies. There's a lot that could be said about this. I think, to me, one interesting thing about it is how it looks at agglomeration or spatial concentration at multiple levels. Really, it's more about proximity than mere agglomeration, if that makes sense. So they look at it, of course, at the metro level and the municipal level, but also even down to the level of neighborhoods and buildings. There are certain buildings that could be preferable to an industry and have stronger spillover effects as well than other buildings and perhaps even within offices as well. I think that kind of corroborates an intuition that people have. I mean the extreme example is probably the White House where people have long preferred and this I guess is dramatized in the for the for those of us of a certain age the show The West Wing where people are willing to work in a boiler room or a closet in order to be near the oval office. So I think the idea that proximity matters is not a controversial one. One thing that I think is interesting about the paper is it comes out in the middle of this pandemic, but the work, of course, all predates the pandemic. And this is something that they talk about in the paper is how technology, especially the rise of certain ICT information communication technologies that have been growing for a while, but are are really at a different stage now than they were, say, 20 years ago, how they're going to interact with these trends. So it's a good read. And we could probably do a whole show about each of these three topics.
1: Yeah, one of the nice points that I hadn't fully appreciated for reading the Rosenthal and Strange piece is that productivity is only a little bit higher in densities compared with outlying areas. Employment is much more concentrated than productivity is another way of saying that. But it's it's just a very small difference in productivity which leads to these like really intense, dense agglomerations of activity. It suggests that businesses only require sort of like this modest productivity boost to really want to be
0: close to the center of things. I thought that was interesting. Conrad, I wonder if you might, drawing on these two articles, as well as your experience as a director for many years, if you might have any thoughts on the role of geography in this new Zoom world that we're in. We've had this shock where everybody had to switch to virtual in a hurry. And of course, we don't know how long that's going to go on. But I wonder if that might affect some of your thoughts about this geographic tax that non-local directors, especially women directors, pay and just more broadly, what shifting more towards virtual might mean for governance.
1: A great question, Greg. I haven't flown since March, since this started, and I probably would have had to make 12 trips to board meetings. Had this been a different type of crisis, so board meetings now are on Zoom or Microsoft Teams or you know WebEx, or and you're talking to someone as we're talking now, and it's clearly, at least in the short run, mitigated the impacts. I'm not traveling. My fellow directors, the vast majority are not traveling, unless they are ultra local and can safely distance from eating. So the shock has put us in a place where I think the profound question is, as the coronavirus impacts abate, how will governance come back? How quickly uh, will we see regulatory or policy relief as we have seen now, given that the impact of this, I think will affect people rather strongly for a long period of time. Directors tend to be old. I mean, the average age is in the 60s. Given the nature of this virus, that's, it's been more virulent to an older population. And so getting on a plane, which is inherently kind of uncomfortable given the circulating air, I'd just be interested, what is your sense, just maybe from a regulatory perspective, is I think we'll see relief in the longer run? And how long will it take to get back to the old normal, or will it ever come back?
0: Well, your guess is as good as mine on that. But Delaware and, and other jurisdictions, as you know, freely allow virtual meetings. The The shift towards virtual pre-corona was very gradual. And I think there was, I don't know if it was shareholder resistance or just a sense of traditionalism that held companies back. So there are some advantages for firms shifting to virtual. So I think it's anybody's guess how long the virus lingers even after there's a vaccine and then how long or how much firms stay virtual versus going back to in-person director meetings. Do you have a sense of kind of certain functions of a board that might work better in one format or the other and in a crisis versus not a crisis?
1: Great question. So if crises are sort of sui generis, right, if they're one of a kind, it seems to require something that's antithesis of a bureaucratic process. The crux of our paper is really information that you can observe in person, right? And does Zoom allow you to observe some things in person, at, yet still it at is at a distance. Well, I can see you, I can see your demeanor, I can look at you. I couldn't do that on phone calls back in the day. So it, it seems better. But in a crisis, it, it seems like a board's job in a crisis is to collectively find a very de novo response. And that's hard on Zoom. It's been, been my experience that you know we can have good conversations but there's not that sense of a follow through. It's like, okay, well, we're gonna have another Zoom meeting tomorrow and the day after, and that has been you know, some of this crisis. But in person, there's just that, there's that cost to be in person. And it's almost like we have this opportunity, we're together, we have to act. Maybe that's not the best action, but this technological shock to my other business, to higher ed, I think is profound. And I think it will be profound to governance You said something that was really interesting is what will shareholder advocates think about directors having these meetings from their home office on Zoom? Is that a stable equilibrium because it looks like, well, you're 50 feet from your office when you wake up. What are you really doing? Why aren't you at the company? Why aren't you looking into the CEO's eyes and seeing what is going on there? Why aren't you taking the pulse of management? Can you really do this from, from home? Great question.
0: I think, I think I conflated two things there. One is shareholder views of shareholder meetings that are virtual. and The other would be shareholder views of board meetings. And I don't know that shareholders have really spoken as to the latter. I know some of the, there's been some energy spent on virtual, on kind of opposing, or at least dictating some of the terms of virtual shareholder meetings. I wonder, now that you're raising it, I hadn't considered... If the increasing awareness of limitations of virtual board meetings might prompt greater shareholder attention there, it's been common for directors, some of them anyway, to phone in, let alone Zoom, even pre-virus. And now that we have more of a sense of these limitations, combined with what I speculate will be a general preference for being in person once, this is, once that's possible, I, I think people are are not eager to stay on Zoom. I guess the pendulum could swing either way, so it's kind of fun to speculate, but I like how you characterized the difference between certain functions, right? For certain ministerial or purely administrative functions, it seems like Zoom or maybe even a phone call would be fine. When you need to get creative, Zoom is not so good for brainstorming. You can't just have a session with a dozen or more people chatting. It doesn't work. Does that mean that the direction then needs to come from the chairman or the independent Uh, chair or the CEO? And if so, what is the give and take among the different directors who are meant to be performing an oversight role, but can't be fully participatory the way they would in person?
1: These are great points. And I, my own kind of trying to manage in this function generally, I think what doesn't tend to happen in the virtual meetings is we're here live. We're not going to be here live tomorrow. We're gonna all head home. We've had this discussion for several hours. What are our next steps? Or what is the decision we are going to make? And getting that closure because then when everybody leaves that state, I think we talked about it earlier, there's this tax of travel. It's hard and many directors, it's endogenous. They're busy people, they're good. And that's why folks want them on the board. So they have made this investment as everybody has to come together and that kind of relationship capital, it's like, well, you know what, great discussion, we'll see you all in three months. It seems to dissipate and sort of like, well, why did I even go halfway across the country, you know, have to change flights? Person next to me was coughing uh, on me the whole way. But the Zoom has, as I, I said earlier, there's, you're 50 feet from the office, you turn it on. We had this very interesting discussion. You know, Greg and I had this great talk, but then it's like, oh, how? What's the follow-up, especially if it's a challenging, strategic type of a decision you're making? Ministerial, I think, can be done. So you might think, okay, maybe this is a prescription for committee meetings. Some committee meetings might work really well in a virtual format and save some of the tax and just be very, very conscious if you're the lead independent director or the chair of saying, all right, we just can't let this thing dissipate. It was ministerial, but you know what? We're gonna tie it up very tightly and it's gonna be done. And that might save a live meeting for more of a truly strategic or advisory type of activity, which is less structured and more spontaneous. Your research, Greg, my research, I mean, we've benefited greatly from going into the person's office next door and just saying, what do you think about? Those are your great colleagues, right? And what makes a research institution a really cool place to work?
0: Absolutely. Those are the knowledge spillovers that Jeff was talking about that we all benefit from in normal times. Less so now with some substitutes, I think, like Twitter is playing a bit of that role imperfectly to be sure, but in other electronic means, like in fact, that's part of the motivation behind the podcast is to help fill a gap that's been created by the virus, but you can't do it all virtually. We're human beings, some measure of spontaneity and serendipity. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's critical.
0: All right. Well, thanks, Conrad, so much for joining us and sharing your work. It's a lot of fun talking about it.
1: Thank you for having me. I enjoyed the conversation, and certainly wish you all the best with the series. Very, very interesting. Thanks for joining us this week on Densely Speaking. Thank you to our guest, Conrad Cicatello. Our producer, Skylar Pals. Check the show notes for links to the articles we discussed on the show, and let us know what you think of today's show on Twitter greg is at greg underscore shill and i'm at jeff arlin if you don't already please subscribe to densely speaking wherever you get your podcasts and please take a second to rate the show as well it helps others find it the views expressed on today's show are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of the federal reserve bank of philadelphia the federal reserve system or any other institution with which the hosts or guests
0: are the.